the Ignition Point, Clayton Bradley Academy's podcast, where every day we work to help students excel through critical thinking, problem solving, collaboration, and use of our lifelong guidelines and life skills. Today's episode of Ignition Point centers on the book that's going to be coming out, Exceeding Expectations 2. Um, you've heard from Karen Olson, you've heard from Sue Pearson, both of which are authors um, on the book, uh, myself as well, and there's um, some others that are also joining that authorship as it's been a group effort uh, to make this um, project happen. And so obviously this is coming off of the ideas that Susan Kovalik started uh, many years ago and has worked with uh, several people that are authors of the book as well as people that are part of the school. For instance, people like Dr. Linda Jordan, um, which is a national trainer that works with uh, CBA regularly and has from the very beginning. Um, I've already mentioned to you Sue Pearson, Dr. Terry Patterson. Um, I'm working to get her also on the podcast. I'm going to be trying to set that up here soon, as well as Dean Tanowitz. Um, and so all of these individuals have contributed to the material that is covered in the book. And I want to take just a minute to talk about that book. This podcast being a little different than some that we've done in the past is I'm just going to talk a little bit about the book, um, which is the model that we use uh, for instruction here at Clayton Bradley Academy. It's called the Learning Centered School. It um, has had different names in the past. Uh, I think originally it started as Integrated Thematic Instruction, which they called ITI. Um, it's also been called Highly Effective Teaching, which is what many of our uh, parents and even teachers have referred to it as for the last uh, 10 years. And then as this book was being written, um, we worked on the name Learning Centered Schools. As part of the book, at the very beginning, it talks about some what-ifs. What if students can't wait to come to school in the morning? What if students can learn by seeing curriculum, the concepts and the skills, being used at places in their community? What if you found an approach to discipline and classroom leadership that reduced classroom disruptions by half or even more? What if it were possible to create a sense of community, not just socially welcoming, but dedicated to mutual support for learning, both in the classroom and and in other places in the building? So these questions kind of start the book um, with these kind of what-if scenarios. Some of it you could even consider to be like dream situations. Now, here's what I know. Every day uh, coming to school for a student, um, we want that to be a joyful experience. We want that to be something that kids look forward to. We know as kids grow and develop that sometimes um, they go through different points in their life where maybe at one point they loved going to school and now it's a little bit more of a challenge. Or maybe as they're getting older, they, they see um, some of the things that happen at school as, as um, difficult. That, that changes sometimes. The brain develops and changes that sometimes school becomes difficult. And so when we look at these what-if scenarios, sometimes it's like, well, you know, in a dream world, a kid would enjoy going to school every day. And, and we know that that's our goal, even though we know sometimes based on what kids are going through, that might not be reality every single day. But our goal is that it is a dream for kids to go to school in that environment. What if you could find an approach to bringing curriculum standards to students in ways that are driven by student needs and interests rather than being externally structured? Um, And then this last one, I love uh, this question. What if you could base all that you do developing day-to-day curriculum 
um, selecting learning strategies, lesson planning, assessing student progress on what we know from neuroscience about how the human brain learns. You know, in education, I, um, as an educator, was, was fairly good at what I did in the classroom, loved what I was doing in the classroom. I loved teaching biology. I loved interacting with high school students. And um, I used a curriculum for that. I, you know, I'm not going to act like I didn't have a curriculum. I had a textbook. I had uh, some great uh, team teachers and mentor teachers that had worked with me throughout the years. And I was pretty good at what I, I was doing in the classroom. But education changed for me whenever I stepped onto Clayton Bradley's campus. And I started thinking about how does the brain actually learn? We've had some great sessions with Dr. Karen Olson, and, and I'm not going to uh, act like that those sessions uh, that I can that can summarize all those sessions with just the you know a simple discussion right now. But just thinking back on what we know about how the brain learns and how we can implement that in the classroom, because that is a huge part of what we hope to accomplish with kids. We don't want to just talk about curriculum. We don't want to cover concepts in our classrooms. We've talked about that on previous con- uh, on previous podcasts. We want to help um, uncover or you know reveal to the brain what's really going on in the world. And we know that when you do that, you really start to ignite that dendrite growth, those connections in the brain. And you can see that shift in the brain happen when you're talking about learning. We talked about this with Karen Olson of those uh, shifts that take place that you can actually see under brain scans as, as, as brains are learning and experiencing something new, how they go through that first phase of detecting and identifying patterns. Um, and that's all about what they're seeing primarily. It's a very visual, um, especially what we know about the brain and where it is right now um, in development with kids and the generations that are currently in school. We know that then it shifts to that pattern seeking where we want to start adding words and and um, definitions to to what we have now experienced or seen um, with our senses that we did in in the first phase. Then we move into uh, that practice phase where we've seen it, we have added some words and definitions to it. Then we want to practice it with support where we are quickly uh, given feedback if we're not on the right track, but yet we have that ability to kind of use that pattern appropriately and we're solidifying that pattern in the brain and then finally um, being able to work independently and apply that learning to sometimes even a, a very different scenario than what we had at the beginning when we learned it for the first time. And so that that learning through phases and understanding that as a teacher, um, you go, how did that impact your classroom? Well, when I started understanding the phases that the kids would be in in my classroom, I could then pattern the activities to help them get the learning into long-term memory. So if I knew this was a topic that was going to be brand new to them, I knew this was a topic maybe that they haven't experienced before, we're going to look for being their experiences. We're going to look for where does this occur in the real world. We're going to look for um, last resort would be like maybe pictures, videos, because we know that those don't trip all of the senses. So we want it to be that real world example first um, and be able to, to ignite as many of those senses as possible to, so that the brain can really pick up on those patterns uh, well. And so if I know that that's where I'm at with a group of students, then I know that what I have to do to help get their brains in the right place. If I know that this is not something maybe that's brand new, 
then I now have strategies of what to do because it might be revisiting and being their experience. It might be adding a little bit more context so that we can go maybe a little deeper than they did in a previous class. And I'm starting to add new vocabulary. I'm starting to help define things maybe a little bit deeper with the vocabulary side. It could be that I know that this is a group of students that needs to practice, practice, practice. We want that in, in sports, we call it muscle memory. And, and it's still really muscle memory in the classroom that we're saying we want them to have that ability to to embrace it and use it and and really solidify that pattern or is this something that they do know this and now I want to challenge them with a good project that I'm asking them to maybe apply that understanding apply that pattern in a new and a different way and so when you when you really start to understand where your kids are in the learning then you can set up the the lessons that will have the largest impact which is what we're going for and there's way more explanation of this in the book um, there's also chapters in the book that talk about emotions um, movement which is a huge part of learning we know that the the brain can only focus on things for a short period of time and it needs to have movement it needs to have an ability to get up process maybe that could be uh, even something simple like a, a scholarly stroll where they're going out with a partner and they're, they're taking a little walk, getting some fresh air maybe, and they're uh, discussing what it was that they just did in class. And it's allowing that brain to download uh, what they've learned and you know solidify, trim away some stuff maybe that they didn't need or maybe through that conversation some stuff that they uh, thought that the other person thought uh, uh, maybe differently. And so trimming up some different pathways and solidifying the, uh, uh, the other pathways. And so we know that movement is huge. We can never uh, sidestep or not acknowledge the power that emotion brings to the classroom. And so there's a whole chapter in the book about the power of emotion and movement because uh, we know that our brains are emotion centers. We know that people are driven by emotion. And so we want to harness the positive emotions. We want to recognize negative emotions. We want to teach our kids to recognize negative emotions and then how to process those. We don't want to recognize something that's a negative emotion just so that we can toss it out. We want to recognize a negative emotion so that then we can come up with healthy ways to deal with negative emotions so that then we can move back into a learning phase. Because once again, like I said, this goes back to that, that statement of we want every kid to enjoy coming to a school every day. But we know that as you interact with others, sometimes you get those negative emotions. Sometimes those negative emotions could make you not want to come to school or make you not want to uh, get in that group project or whatever. And so it's recognizing those negative emotions and then dealing with them in a positive way so that we can get back into the state of learning and back into a state where we can work on a project or work with our friends um, in our classroom. So we recognize that in the book as well, the power of those emotions. We know that emotions are very important and they drive how we build relationships. And we know that relationships are the key. You know, one of the things we talk to our teachers about that first week of school is we want them to build strong relationships with their students. We want them to build relationships with their parents. We want them to build relationships with their faculty members. And so those relationships are what will enhance what happens in the classroom and so our teachers we tell them that first week like build strong positive relationships because those relationships are going to enhance the learning that takes place and you could uh, do a lot of things easier in the classroom when you have strong relationships with your kids and so um, understanding how to build those relationships very important we do, we do a lot of that here at the school we talk about it a lot with our faculty and staff and so there's a whole chapter in the book uh, about that and then 
the we get into the section of the book that is really what Sue Pearson's podcast was about. And I encourage you to go back and listen to the three um, sessions with Sue Pearson as we discuss the four body-brain compatible elements uh, that the book identifies. Now, there were more in previous editions of the book. And for this one, we have consolidated it down into four. But when you read through it, you'll see the other body-brain compatible elements are in there. They're just um, categorized through the lens of these four body-brain compatible elements. And so the first one we talked about with Sue was the absence of threat and creating community where we want the brain to be in a good place when it comes to class. That's why we want our teachers at the door welcoming people into the classroom. That's why we want an agenda on the board. That's why we want clear procedures up posted around the classroom. These are all things that drive this idea of absence of threat and then setting up community groups, setting up collaboration teams, setting up uh, community circles, all of those things help to create community, recognizing your place in the community and what uh, your role may be, um, how you can value others, how you should value yourself, those sort of things. The next uh, body brain compatible element is uh, reflective thinking. And reflective thinking deals with um, kind of that sense of, of knowing when you know and knowing when you don't know. And that may be a, a kind of a funny way to say that, but research has shown that students know what they know and they know what they don't know. Um, that's been done multiple times with kids in classrooms of, of different kind of assessment tools where it's seeing you know how confident were they in these responses and then how often they got those right and how, um, how confident were they that they didn't know what they were doing and how often those questions were right. And so nurturing reflective thinking is helping kids identify what do they know and what do they don't know. And then when they don't know something, what are they going to be able to do to understand that, to get to a, a place where you can say, I know it, and helping the students be part of that conversation. Um, we also talk about it in ways of the educator um, being that facilitator to drive the conversation um, to support them when they need support, to just being there to coach them, being there to mentor them. As a teacher, the importance of finding somebody to help coach and mentor you through that reflective thinking, through that, that truthful way to analyze where you are. And the more we are truthful with ourselves, the more we can then also learn what we know and what we don't know, how to uh, identify problem uh, problems that need to be solved, how to set up a process of solving those problems. That's all part of that reflective thinking. And so we want to set up that kind of environment here. We've got uh, not just with our students, but with our faculty and staff, we've got mentoring, coaching groups, uh, those collaborative groups. We want to be able to provide an environment where reflective thinking can take place in a safe and meaningful way. The third body brain compatible element is meaningful content. Meaningful content um, is all of the things that make your classroom so successful, uh, that kids are able to go on being their experiences, that there are sensory-rich environments. We, wanna, we want to uh, get all of the senses uh, in the brain uh, going uh, when we're learning, not just the, the ones that we think about with sight. Sight is the one that happens so often in the classroom, uh, but we want to add others. We want to add the, the sense of smell, the power of emotions, the, the recognizing belonging, all of those things that the brain is picking up on. There's so many there that the brain is recognizing that you don't even think about um, as you go about your day. Movement is part of meaningful content. 
providing choice for students so choice on the types of projects they're doing choice on how they're completing those projects choice on um, maybe even a seating assignment uh, it could be the type of seat they're in and not just being a standard everybody gets the same thing um, because choice helps the brain um, to enjoy what it's doing it helps the brain feel like it belongs it helps the brain feel like it has a place and so we want to provide choice as part of that meaningful content the ability to collaborate that you're recognizing the value in what others are bringing to the table that you don't know everything and that um, others around the table and giving their voice and their input can help you grow as well and we know that that is uh, all important in meaningful content and then obviously part of that meaningful content is identifying the learning um, that we talked about earlier the phases of learning where are students at and then how can I hit them where they are in a powerful way so that that learning uh, goes into long-term memory and then the last body brain compatible element is the application and mastery that getting the learning to long-term memory so that they can pull it up um, when they need it they can apply a pattern they've learned to something new um, you may have not had this experience but maybe it's it's something like what I've experienced of you know you learn calculations and and stuff involving triangles maybe in like a trig class and and you think when you're learning this when am I ever going to use that and then later on in life I've been I, I like to do some woodworking and stuff and you start to get into a project that you recognize wait this is a triangle and all of a sudden if I'm trying to make the right cut there's ways to figure this out mathematically of what cut I need to make and it saves you a lot of time. It saves you a lot of mess ups. It saves you a lot of recutting uh, to be able to apply that. And so bringing up something that, you know, from high school that you're like, wait, I know there's a, a formula out there. Let me go find that formula. Um, let me apply this formula in the right way to get this answer. And so that extending that, that past the classroom, we want to give our students chances to extend the learning uh, in powerful ways outside of the classroom, outside of just what their teachers are asking them to do. Providing adequate time. It takes time to get things into long-term memory. We know that. Um, that's the hardest one because we have 180 days of class time with our students. And so that providing adequate time sometimes can be a challenge because we have you know a limited number of days to, to help them master this content. But trying your best to provide adequate time, not just driving onto the next concept and then leaving a bunch of gaps in the learning. Immediate feedback is a huge part of this uh, application to mastery. We don't want somebody to practice something multiple times the wrong way. We want to make sure that when they're practicing, they're practicing the right way. We want to get rid of bad habits. We want to make sure that they're following the right processes and procedures as they're learning. And so the, it's very important at this time for the teacher to have uh, that ability to give quick feedback, to give um, immediate feedback as we say they waitress the tables meaning they're going through those groups as kids are working and stuff in their class and they're looking for errors so that they can quickly uh, help resolve that error and get uh, get the brain back in the right track and then all of that leads to this being a long-term memory uh, process which is what we're looking for with our kids and their standards and so all of this is discussed uh, in detail in the book uh, it'll be released here shortly and when that is released we'll make sure you know how to get a hold of your copy if you're wanting a copy of it um, there's all kinds of things that I have don't have time uh, to go into right now in the book that helps 
the teacher in the classroom not only building the curriculum but how to uh, write their curriculum and, and things that will help solidify it in the brain like key points um, how to set those key points up in, in a way that the brain can attach learning to them and be able to then put it into long-term memory and bring it back out how to prioritize uh, curriculum and standards in ways that you can get the most learning out of your kids and then how to, how to assess uh, what they've learned how to assess uh, the students in their uh, learning, but also how to assess you as the teacher and how you're using the model and your effectiveness in helping students learn um, and possibly even assessing uh, your institution um, on, on their implementation of the model. And so I just wanted to spend a, a short time since we had done the podcast with Karen Olson and uh, Sue Pearson and just give a little overview of the book like i said when it comes out we'll make sure that we put it out there how do you can get your own copy of that it's exceeding expectations to the learning center school model using neuroscience to improve student outcomes Um, there's it's going to be a a great purchase for you to understand more about the brain to understand more about this model and to truly impact students in a positive way This has been the Ignition Point, Clayton Bradley Academy's podcast, where every day we work to help students excel through critical thinking, problem solving, collaboration, and use of our lifelong guidelines and life skills. If you'd like to find out more about the school, you can visit us on our website, www.claytonbradleyacademy.org, or you can find us on social media sites at CBA STEM or at Clayton Bradley Academy. We hope you have a wonderful day.